Well, I'm so thankful that all of you have come out this evening. There's something about our Sunday evening service that's just is very special to me. It is a, it's just a time, kind of a family time to get into the Word of God together, and it's um, a delight for me. It's kind of the highlight of, of a long and wonderful day. I love Sundays. I know you do because you're here, and so we'll continue praying that the Lord uses us at Grace Bible Church. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, we turned a corner into the Nehemiah portion of Ezra Nehemiah this past Lord's Day evening. We looked at the big picture of the Lord using Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem in order to lead the difficult effort to build back the walls, build back the gates of Jerusalem. And you recall that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire. This is a, a high level trusted advisory position. And that when Nehemiah heard that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem were torn down and burned down, his reaction was grief. His reaction was sorrow. But ultimately, he went to prayer. In fact, very quickly, he went to prayer. Nehemiah 1 verse 4. Now it happened that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, last time we saw Nehemiah's plan to rebuild, his tremendous shrewdness in going to all the Jews in Judah with his plan, instead of just to the leaders of the Jews, because many of the leaders were loyal to the opposition, they had intermarried with foreign leaders' families around them. But we recall that Nehemiah, by going to all the people and not just to the leaders, with a strong contingent of corrupt men protecting family ties at all costs, all the people agreed that this work needed to be done. So he used the, the, the tithe of public opinion in his favor to begin to accomplish God's purposes. And so Nehemiah is about to embark on this mission of rebuilding. The last time we just briefly touched on Nehemiah's prayer of chapter 1, it's a prayer filled with help and instruction, I think, for each of us as believers in Christ and so I wanted to do what we did a few weeks ago. A number of weeks ago, we stopped and looked intently at the prayer of Ezra in Ezra 9. It was a prayer of contrition, a prayer of confession on Israel's behalf. And we saw that in that particular prayer, Ezra made no requests of the Lord. He didn't ask for anything. Instead, he simply humbly presented his confession of sin and throwing himself and throwing his people on the mercy of God. Now, Nehemiah's prayer is equally important, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written for our benefit, but it's totally different in tone and flavor. Nehemiah does confess sin. That's a big part of the prayer. He comes to God on behalf of the Jews, and he does so with great humility and contrition, but he ends the prayer with a bold request. Ezra made no request. Nehemiah does. He only makes one, but it's a biggie. There's a lot of language of asking and some repetition of asking in this particular prayer. Now, I would remind you that this is a, a recorded prayer, which is a condensed version of Nehemiah's prayers, because verse 4 says that Nehemiah was praying for days. And in fact, we'll see here in a bit that he was also praying for months. And so what we have here really is the condensed basic prayer that he also quickly prayed in the presence of the king in chapter 2, right before making his giant request to go to Jerusalem and to oversee the rebuilding of the walls. Now, before we get into this, do you ever have a wonderful plate of food before you and you pick up your knife and fork and you just take a moment to just look at it and go, ah, that's what I want to do for a moment. Every time you get to a prayer in the Bible, that is a moment of, Oh, this is going to be helpful. This is going to be good. This is going to be a comfort. This is going to be a joy. There's a relief. There's a, a joyfulness in our hearts whenever we come to a prayer in the Bible, especially in extended prayers such as this one or Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9, because there's a sense that you're listening in on a divine conversation. You're listening in on something that's holy and, and, and heavenly there's a sense of getting an inside scoop on what's really going on in the heavenlies. What it really means to communicate with the living God. I think all of us have had times of prayer where you, you just sort of feel like you don't know what to say or you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and, or you feel like you can't get started. And this is why God gives us so many prayers in the Bible. 
There's a sense of a reminder and an inspiration when we listen in on the prayer of a saint in the Bible. And one of the tremendous joys is that you know that you're, you're looking at a prayer that can be emulated. It's an example for all of us to follow. And that's my prayer for us together tonight, that stopping our trek through Ezra and Nehemiah, just to kind of take a time out and listen in on a divine conversation I'm hopeful that this will be a comfort and a delight and a joy and an inspiration to all of you. And so tonight, in our continued efforts to outline the faithfulness of God in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to look together at the fact that God accepts bold requests in prayer. He accepts bold requests in prayer. I'd like to read the entire prayer and then we'll deconstruct it as we go. Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse, I'm sorry, Nehemiah 1, beginning in verse 5. Nehemiah 1, beginning in verse 5, I said, and here is his prayer, I beseech you, O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and fearsome God who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your slave, which I am praying before you today, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have worked in other destruction against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Unfaithful, rather, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Though those of you who have been banished were at the ends of the sky, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your slaves and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your right hand, your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and to the prayer of your slaves who delight to fear your name and make your slave successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Nehemiah's prayer is extremely well organized structurally. It's formed in the familiar chiastic structure, which is the first in which the first sections are mirror imaged in the in the second sections is in terms of themes. And very often the center portion is the key instructive element for the reader. And in this case, the thematic and structural center of the prayer is found in verse 7. The confession of the covenant unfaithfulness of God's people. We have worked another destruction against you and have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which you commanded your servant Moses. And that's the center. And I'd like to use the structure that God inspired through Nehemiah. And I'd like to construct what we might call a seven-part plan for prayer. A seven-part plan for prayer. And we're going to see the chiastic mirror image structure kind of unfold as we go. Part one of this plan for prayer, ascribe significance to God. Ascribe significance to God. Verse five, we'll read our way through it once again. I said, I beseech you, O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and fearsome God who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his command and keep his commandments. Nehemiah addresses God by his name of covenant faithfulness, Yahweh, the name which speaks of the eternal existence of God, which speaks of the fact that there is only one true living God. And keeping in mind that this prayer is a summary of many, many prayers, remember that Nehemiah was praying this prayer not only over a period of days, but over several months, from the month of Chislev, chapter 1, verse 1, to the month of Nisan, chapter 2, verse 1, and that would be about three months or so. And so Nehemiah ascribes to Yahweh significance that this is the way you address the sovereign of creation. And in fact, we could divide this ascription into two parts. God's fearsomeness and God's faithfulness. God's fearsomeness, first of all, he addresses him as the God of heaven. This indicates the loftiness and, and the grandeur of God that if it wasn't for God's mercy and grace, God is unapproachable. In fact, even the New Testament tells us this. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in what? Unapproachable light. It's only by grace that we approach God. And the idea that you could intellectually decide to approach God is ludicrous scripturally. 
How could you possibly do that? To ascribe to God that He is the God of heaven is to admit, Nehemiah admitting, I'm totally helpless. And that unless the gates of heaven are thrown open to me, I have nowhere to go. The gates are open from the inside only, and Nehemiah doesn't have a chance unless they are. Because God doesn't need Nehemiah. God could wipe Nehemiah off the earth. He could wipe everyone off the earth. He could destroy everything he's made, and he would still be the God of heaven who is dwelling in unapproachable light. Nothing would change for God. Not only is he the God of heaven, Nehemiah calls him the great God. The great God. The Hebrew word order here is majestic. In the Hebrew text, Nehemiah says, the God, the great, and the fearsome. Great speaks of power. It can be translated great or high or even large. It just speaks of, uh, of the, the enormity of God. He is above. He is high. And He is the fearsome God. He's the fearsome God. Interestingly, the, the English, in English this is translated as an adjective. The great and fearsome God. But it's a verb in Hebrew that God is, are you ready for this? The fear-causing God. He's the God who causes fear. This is the God that caused this reaction in the prophet Habakkuk. After Habakkuk heard from God, he said, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips tingled. Decay entered my bones and in my place I trembled. But in Nehemiah's opening here, he doesn't just describe significance to God based on God's fearsomeness. He also ascribes significance to God based on God's faithfulness. Nehemiah calls God the God who keeps covenant. Who keeps the covenant. This is the same Hebrew word used to speak of human, humanity obeying or keeping the law of God. That when God makes a covenant with men, he obligates himself to that covenant. And why does God keep covenant? Because of his loving kindness. That all-important Old Testament word has said the gracious covenant-keeping love that God shows toward those with whom He's made covenant promises. And notice what Nehemiah calls those in covenant with God, those who love Him and keep His commandments. Those two concepts go together all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. That if you love God, you keep His commandments. Those always go together. The genuine redemptive relationship is demonstrated by keeping the law of Moses in the Old Testament and the law of Christ in the New Testament. Not to gain salvation, but to demonstrate salvation. Those two always go together. There is no call for somebody to say, I love God, I just don't want to obey Him. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Nehemiah ascribes to Yahweh his fearsomeness and his faithfulness. I think this is very instructive to us because what he's doing here is he is praising God. He's praising God, and in our sappy evangelical churchianity that our nation suffers from at so many levels, the idea of praise has become equated with several things that that aren't totally accurate. Praise, for example, has been associated with emotion, emotions of happiness and ecstasy. Some of us still have nightmares of music leaders in a church service jumping around trying to generate an emotion. And what are they saying? Let's praise the Lord together. And it's, it's supposed to be something happy and emotional. It can be. Praise can be. But I don't think that this particular prayer was a happy prayer. It was a very somber prayer. We also see that praise has wrongly been associated with certain era, a certain era of music in the church that we sing hymns and praise songs, meaning those that are written more recently, as if hymns don't contain praise. That's ridiculous. I would put it the other way around. Hymns contain the best praise. But then praise has also been associated with music worship in general. Now, to be certain, praising the Lord can and must happen in music, but the time in which instruments are playing and people are singing words doesn't automatically make it praise. I decided to test this out and I tortured myself listening to a local uh, Christian radio station. And, and I, t- I couldn't get from one place to the rest before I just turned. I would rather listen to an atheist read the dictionary than listen to this. And I can tell you what every song is about. I'm in trouble, but Jesus came to make my life better. That's what every song is about. There's no praise. There's no, there's no helpfulness. What is praise? This praise of God that Nehemiah is offering is not an emotional, sappy, 
false emotional hype time. It is the repeating of the revealed theological truths about God unto God himself, to the glory of God. That's what praise is. It is, can I put it this way, reading his Bible back to him and saying, I believe this. That's praise. Our translation gives the correct sense of Nehemiah's opening words, I beseech you. This is an understandable version of the single, single Hebrew interjection here. We could also translate it, oh God, or ah, oh God. And then Nehemiah ascribes to God his fearsomeness and his faithfulness. Pretty good way to start a prayer. Ascribe significance to God. Here's part two of our prayer plan. Request God's responsiveness. Request God's responsiveness. Chapter 1, verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your slave, which I am praying before you today, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves. Nehemiah here uses figurative language of God. God is invisible. God is spirit. He has no need of physical ears, no need of physical eyes. He's all-knowing and all-wise. And in this little section we just read in verse 6, Nehemiah presents to the Lord four reasons that God ought to listen to him. They're all humble reasons. None of these reasons would ever come close to telling God that somehow Nehemiah deserves a hearing. Now here is four reasons. The first reason is loyalty. Loyalty. Nehemiah labels himself the slave of Yahweh. That his sole desire is to serve God for God's sake, for God's glory, for God's name, for God's fame. There's a, a very clear implication here. And that is that if Nehemiah has just described greatness and fearsomeness to God, it's unlikely that Nehemiah is trying to fool God with false words, with lofty words that aren't true. In other words, when he says, I am a slave of Yahweh, that represents the deepest of his heart, the truest heart of the believer. The second reason he gives is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Nehemiah says he's praying this prayer before Yahweh. I beseech you, O Yahweh. Now to us that might seem obvious. But please keep in mind that Nehemiah lives in a Persian world that believes that Yahweh exists and believes that all the other pantheon of gods exists as well. Israel's greatest sin through the centuries, always centered on covenant unfaithfulness by falling into the worship of other gods. So it's in this context that Nehemiah says, in this world in which countless gods are believed upon, I acknowledge you, Yahweh, the only true and living God. This is Nehemiah asserting that he believes with all of his heart in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. There's a third reason that Nehemiah says that God ought to hear his prayer, persistence, persistence. Nehemiah points out that he's been praying not only this day, but day and night before God. Now, last week we explored the question of how prayer and the providence of God work in unity together. And we, we briefly mentioned that in the sovereign plan of God, prayer is a means by which he carries out his plan. In fact, this concept of persistence in prayer was important enough that Jesus told a whole parable about it. Listen from Luke 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me justice from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice lest by continually coming she wears me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Sound familiar, doesn't it? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. And the point of the parable is that if, an, if a godless atheistic judge will listen to a woman's request just to get rid of her, how much more will the God who loves you and you're in covenant with listen to you? And there's a fourth reason Nehemiah gives the Lord in requesting God's responsiveness, and that is intercession. Intercession. Nehemiah says that his prayers are on behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves. 
Now that is an airtight reason. Because Nehemiah is not praying for himself. That's a great reason to give to the Lord. This is not for me. This is for others. Now, to be very clear here, the last verse of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah praying for himself. But that's a different situation, different time, and a lot of water will go into the bridge between now and then. But for now, Nehemiah is telling God, the request I'm going to make is not for me. It is for your people who are also your slaves, those who belong to you. Those are four fantastic reasons to give God to hear your prayers, aren't they? Loyalty, faithfulness, persistence, intercession. Now, I could add one more as believers in Christ. You could add this reason. Jesus commanded me to pray to you, Father. That's a great reason as well. So you might add, God, you told me to come to you. Part one of this plan for prayer, ascribe significance to God. Part two, request God's responsiveness Part three, we will call confess sin in general. Confess sin in general. Verse six, let your ear now be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your slave, which I am praying before you today, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. This is really more Nehemiah stating that he's about to get really specific with sin confession. He's just confessing generally speaking. And he covers all the bases. He says that the whole nation has sinned. He says that his family has sinned, my father's house. And since Nehemiah is part of his father's house and part of the nation, he identifies with the people and says that he himself has sinned against God. Now, why is this important? Nehemiah probably didn't have to represent the people He could have prayed for their sin. Moses did this on occasion. Sometimes he asked God, what are you going to do with those people? He didn't identify all the time. But by identifying with them, he's humbling himself. And in essence, here's what he's telling God. He's telling God, my future is wrapped up in these people. My future is wrapped up in Israel. So whatever you do to them, you're doing to me. Whatever you do to me, you're doing to them. And so he identifies with them. It's a very loving prayer. We've seen this in the New Testament. This was the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul so desired the future salvation of national Israel that he would even give up his own salvation if that would bring it about. He wrote in Romans 9, 1-3, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So Nehemiah is is saying, I'm all in with these people, and if they sin, then I've sinned. So Nehemiah now confesses in general that there is sin to be dealt with before God. Part one of this plan for prayer, ascribe significance to God. Part two, request God's responsiveness. Part three, confess sin in general. And the theological, the structural center of the prayer, part four, confess covenant unfaithfulness in particular. Confess covenant unfaithfulness in particular. Verse seven. We have worked in utter destruction against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. In verse eight, he's going to acknowledge that the word of God through Moses promised that unfaithfulness would lead to scattering, which it did. So Nehemiah makes no excuses. He doesn't say, but Lord, you don't understand that we're just under a lot of stress here. No excuses at all. But verse 7 is an absolute bombshell. Because this is a summary prayer, remember? This is a shortened version of telling back to God precisely how Israel has violated covenant with God. First he says that they haven't kept the commandments This is referring to the overall covenant with Israel we know as the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. That yes, Israel as a nation had egregiously violated all Ten Commandments. They had taken other gods to worship. They had engaged in idol worship. They had taken the name of Yahweh in vain. In other words, saying that they're called by His name the way a a wife is called by her husband's name. And yet they've forsaken God, their heavenly husband. 
They had forsaken and forgotten the sign of their covenant with God, the Sabbath day. They had violated the principle of respecting authority, honoring father and mother. They had committed murder without justice. They had committed adultery without repentance. They had thieves and wicked men in their midst with no justice. They had a culture of lying and bearing false witness. Number 10, they had a culture of coveting and the powerful taking from the less powerful. If you don't believe me, read Habakkuk 1. That's exactly the situation that Habakkuk describes. So they had violated the commandments nationally. All 10 of them. But they had also violated the statutes. The 600 plus laws of the Old Testament, every one of them are the outworking of the specific circumstances, the specific applications of the Ten Commandments. Every one of the laws can be placed under one of the commandments. What does that mean? It means that no one could ever say, but I don't know what it means to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Nobody explained that to me. Well, the statutes did. And they gave situational awareness of every possible way you could violate that commandment. And for example, Leviticus 18.21 gives this specific you shall not give any of your seed or your sons to pass them over to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. In other words, don't mess with Molech, the false God, because you're violating the third commandment by doing this. So Nehemiah is confessing that Israel had violated the general law. They violated the outworkings of the law. And he says the judgments. This refers to the legal decisions or the judgments that God made based on specific situations with God giving an order to Israel to do something or to not do something. Basically what he's saying is if God said do it, we didn't do it. If God said don't do it, we did. Nehemiah is confessing to God every level of disobedience, the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, the individual specific situational judgments of the law. When confessing sin to God... Nehemiah's pattern is to confess sin in general, followed by confession of sin in particular. Now, I've reminded you several times now that this is a summary prayer. That Nehemiah has been praying first for days, verse 4, and then for several months. Now, why is that important? It would not at all be out of the realm of possibility that Nehemiah had spent time with his Bible open, as it were, going through every law and confessing how they had broken it. I would love to challenge each and every one of you to take a time of confession of sin and do so with an open Bible. To open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 and begin confessing as you read Ephesians 4, 1 with all humility and confess how how you've not been humble. And gentleness, confess how you've not been gentle. And patience, confess how you've not been patient. We haven't even gotten out of verse 1 yet. You see how Nehemiah could take three months for a prayer of confession? Ascribe significance to God. Request God's responsiveness. Confess sin in general. Confess covenant unfaithfulness in particular. Part five of this prayer plan. Request mercy based in repentance of sin. Request mercy based in repentance of sin. And now this corresponds structurally to part three. Confess sin in general. Now we're requesting mercy Based in repentance of sin. Verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been banished were at the ends of the sky, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your slaves and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Now, like other parts of the prayer, this is a summary. And in essence, listen to this, God is hearing back his own words from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is reading the Bible back to God. This is what you promised. And I'd like to actually take a moment and have us track with Nehemiah briefly. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, and we're going to take a little tour here in Deuteronomy Because this is what forms Nehemiah's prayer. This is a great lesson for us. That if you don't know what to pray, pray scripture. Because you know you can't go wrong there. 
Deuteronomy 4, 27. And let's just track with him. We read what he said in the prayer, but we can see where he got it. Deuteronomy 4, 27. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will remain few in number among the nations where Yahweh drives you. Verse 28. And there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him for you will search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Nehemiah is referencing this promise. Go all the way to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 near the end of the chapter, verse 64. Repeating the same theme. Deuteronomy 28, 64. Moreover, Yahweh will scatter you among among all peoples. From one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And then turn a page or two to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, and this is the big one. Chapter 30, verse 1, So it will be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you cause these things to return to your heart in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you, And you return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons. Then Yahweh your God will return you from captivity and return his compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If those of you who are banished are at the ends of the sky, from there Yahweh your God will gather you and from there he will take you back. You can hear the prayer in Nehemiah 1. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Now stay in Deuteronomy. There's more to see in a moment. I want to just take a little side note here. What we're seeing is that Nehemiah is asserting that he's going to start the ball rolling with genuine repentance as a nation, and he's asking God to forgive based on God's own word. And this is so important for us. You can do this as well. You can ask for God's forgiveness for the new covenant breaking sins that you commit. You can tell God, Lord, Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Psalm 32 says this. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Verse 5 says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You can tell God, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God, you said you're faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you can thank God that your sin has no impact on the state of your salvation. You can remind God, as it were, that Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God, you said that. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And this is exactly what Nehemiah is doing in Nehemiah 1 verse 10. He's reminding God, they are your slaves and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What's he calling to mind? The Exodus. He's saying, God, You redeemed them. You saved them. And on that basis, I ask you to forgive. Nehemiah is echoing Moses himself. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 9, 29. He's echoing Moses. In his plea for mercy based on the promises of God. Deuteronomy 9.29, Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. That's exactly what Nehemiah said. They are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power, your outstretched arm. What is Moses saying? And by default, what is Nehemiah echoing? He's saying, God, your glory will be diminished if you don't forgive these people. They're yours. Go back to chapter 26, verse 8. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. Again, echoing Moses. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. Let me start in verse 7. 
Deuteronomy 26, 7. Then we cried out to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, and Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And then the very end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Very last three verses, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Speaking of Moses, and there has not yet arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. In regard to all the signs and wonders which Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land. And in regard to all the mighty power and in regard to all the great terror which Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Nehemiah is asserting that yes, Israel will repent. But he's asking for forgiveness based on God's previous actions. God's previous salvation of Israel. In essence, he's asking the rhetorical question, will it all be for nothing? Will will the Red Sea go down in history as the worst failure of all time? Will that be the case? And the same goes for you. Your redemption in Christ is reason for you to ask God to forgive you and reason to ask God to help you. And you can ask the question, will it all be for nothing? But it won't be because you belong to Him. Go back to Nehemiah 1 if you would. Our prayer plan Ascribe significance to God. Request God's responsiveness. Confess sin in general. Confess covenant unfaithfulness in particular. Request mercy based in repentance of sin. Part six. Now you're going to see the the clear mirror image structure here. Request God's responsiveness again. Request God's responsiveness again. Verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and the prayer of your slaves who delight to fear your name and make your slave successful today. Now this obviously corresponds to the first request for God's responsiveness, but now there's been confession of sin probably for months. And you remember the four fantastic reasons that Uh, Nehemiah gave God to hear his prayers, loyalty, faithfulness, persistence, intercession. In shorter form, Nehemiah gives the same four reasons again. He gives the reason of loyalty. Nehemiah addresses Yahweh as Lord, Adonai, meaning master or ruler. It's a declaration of total loyalty. You are my Lord. You are my master. You are my ruler. He gives the reason of faithfulness. He says, we delight to fear your name. This is a way of saying it's our pleasure and our joy to worship you. It's our pleasure to to fear you. He gives the reason of persistence. He says, oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive. This is a verb form that means over and over and over again, repeatedly. Be attentive once again. What does that mean? Like you were to all my other prayers over the past three months. Loyalty, faithfulness, persistence, and he gives the reason of intercession. He's praying on behalf of all who have delighted to fear your name, who have endeavored to be faithful. Remember that the sin of the Jews, which, which the returned exiles, what got them in trouble, was the intermarrying with foreign nations. But you recall the list in Ezra 10 shows that it wasn't all of them. It was just some of them. And so there are some who delight to fear your name. And Nehemiah intercedes on their behalf. Well, that brings us to the last part. Ascribe significance to God. Request God's responsiveness. Confess sin in general. Confess covenant unfaithfulness in particular. Request mercy based in repentance of sin. Request God's responsiveness again. You remember part one was ascribe significance to God. Part seven is ascribe insignificance to yourself. Ascribe insignificance to yourself. You remember how Nehemiah's prayer began. He ascribes significance to God and now he does the opposite with himself. He asks God in verse 11 to be attentive to the prayer of God's slave. You notice that Nehemiah won't even say my prayer. He won't won't speak of himself. He won't mention himself except, except as the one owned by God. Make your slave successful. And now, only now, after ascribing significance to God, requesting God's responsiveness 
confessing sin in general, confessing covenant unfaithfulness in particular, requesting mercy based in repentance of sin, after requesting God's responsiveness again, and after ascribing insignificance to himself. Only now does Nehemiah make the big ask, the bold request. The end of verse 11, and grant him compassion before this man. Who is this man? The king of the Persian Empire. Oh, nothing much. God, would you just make the most powerful man in the world sympathetic to our cause? That's his request. No wonder he prayed for three months first. And of course, we remember from chapter 2 that in fact, King Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah all that he asked for to be able to go back to Judah as the governor, to have letters of protection against the enemies of the Jews, to have all the building materials he needed supplied, to even have a governor's house built for himself to live in, all so that Nehemiah could rebuild the wall and the protective structures around the temple, all of this to the glory and to the honor and to the praise of Yahweh, his Lord. This is a very strong position from which to pray when you're praying for the glory of God. One theologian wrote that prayer turned the all-powerful king of Persia into a pipsqueak potentate, which is what he was in God's eyes. Did you see how long it took to get to the actual request? It doesn't mean that we can't make requests of the Lord initially and quickly, but it does provide a pattern for the position from which you make requests. That God is the God of heaven, the God, the great, and the fearsome. I'm a redeemed slave of God, only daring to make a big request that would certainly point all glory and honor and fame back to Him. Only then... Do I have that confidence? If you'll indulge me for a minute, I want to take just a few more minutes. As we quickly glossed over an important dynamic here that was present both in Ezra's prayer and Nehemiah's prayer, and that is the element found in verse 4. Now it happened that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting. The element of fasting both Ezra and Nehemiah, of denying themselves food during this time of prayer for a period of time. In the Bible, fasting is almost always associated with prayer, but frankly, it's very difficult to formulate a clear theology of fasting because the New Testament, for example, contains no direct commands to fast. And most of our examples of fasting are Old Testament examples. But we should note that Jesus gave guidance about fasting in Matthew 6, 16, beginning with the words, when you fast. And since fasting is seen clearly as part of the believer's life in both Old Testament and New Testament, I think we can say with reasonable certainty that fasting at some level, at some time, is profitable in the good part of your walk with the Lord. Jesus said, when you fast, not if. There's just an inherent assumption here. And we've already seen Nehemiah's prayer very much a model of prayer. And I'd like to take just a few moments to talk about fasting with you. And I'd like to use various examples from Scripture in just very brief survey form. We won't turn to any. But I just want to show you two different ideas here. The first idea is what fasting must not be. What fasting must not be. And first of all, it must not be a means of boasting. It must not be a means of boasting. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, did not make it obvious that you're fasting by looking all gloomy and sad. Jesus said this person has his reward already. What, what does he mean by that? What reward? Someone going, oh, you're fasting. Reward done. That's it. Hope you enjoyed it. That went by really quick. Doesn't mean others can't know. Sometimes that's unavoidable. But it does mean to take care that your fasting isn't for self-aggrandizement. It must not be a means of of boasting fasting must not be for false motives it must not be for false motives during his disastrous reign of incompetence and unfaithfulness first samuel records one instance in which king saul commands his army to not eat food all day while they're pursuing the philistines to to fast all day before a battle that his men couldn't eat until they had defeated the philistines they had nothing to do with god and everything to do with manipulating his men Fasting must not be to impress God hypocritically. It must not be to impress God hypocritically. Isaiah 58 gives a condemnation of faithless Israel. And he pictures Israel complaining to God. And this is gall 
to say, we've been fasting and why aren't you looking? Why aren't you seeing it, God? Why aren't you impressed? And God answers, and this is my paraphrase, because on the same day you're fasting, you're sinning with other pleasures. And you're cruel and oppressive to those under your authority. And in fact, when you fast, you use it as an excuse to be self-righteously violent against people you don't like. So it cannot be any of those things. Let's look at what fasting can be. Fasting can be a time of intercessory prayer. It can be a time of intercessory prayer. We saw this with both Ezra and Nehemiah, that when begging God on behalf of others, they fasted in total submission to this crisis. Those of you with children or parents who don't know the Lord, I know some of you have fasted for them. I know some of you have said, I need to intercede to the Lord and I need to focus on nothing else but this. Fasting can be a time of confession and repentance. It can be a time of confession and repentance. This dynamic was also in play with Ezra and Nehemiah, but we could also think about Leviticus 23.32. The Israelites were commanded to humble themselves or afflict themselves on the day of atonement, the day of sacrifice and confession of sin. And most see that as a day of fasting. It's the one commanded fast in the law. 1 Samuel 7, 6 records that all of Israel fasted for a day in response to being confronted by idol- for idolatry by Samuel. And in their confrontation of sin, they, they stopped eating so that they could deal with this before God. And we've seen this in the New Testament as well. Acts 9, verse 9 records that after Jesus himself confronted Saul of Tarsus and knocked him to the ground and blinded him, Saul, soon to be Paul, fasted for three days, presumably in humiliation and confession. Fasting can be a time of seeking help. It can be a time of seeking help. Second Chronicles 20 records King Jehoshaphat in trouble with vast armies coming against him. And what did he do? He, in verses 3 and 4, he gathered the whole nation together to fast and to seek God's help in prayer. Fasting can be a time of intense spiritual preparation. It can be a time of spiritual preparation. Matthew 4 records Jesus fasting for 40 days before his temptation. Now, many feel that this was to demonstrate that the Son of God could withstand the temptation of Satan even after being weakened for 40 days physically, kind of like the equivalent of having one hand tied behind your back or something like that. That may have been a byproduct of Jesus fasting for 40 days, but that wasn't the purpose. Jesus was about to represent all of mankind as the only one who could successfully spiritually defeat the second most powerful being in creation. And if Jesus fails at the temptation, the cross means nothing. And so he's spiritually prepared. By the way, do you think that was the first time Jesus fasted for 40 days? I'll bet it wasn't. I'll bet he's spiritually prepared for the time of spiritual preparation as well. Fasting can be a time to minister to others. It can be a time to minister to others. Isaiah 58, 7, God is correcting the hypocritical fasting of Israel And instead, he gives a very practical reason to fast. You ready for this? The reason could be that your brother is hungry and you share your food with him. In other words, fasting includes the principle of going without so that you can do good with it. How often do we give to the Lord and to others only after we've completely satisfied ourselves? I would say that's our default position most of the time. Instead, God says, give something up to give. Grace Bible Church is so faithful to to give and and I'm so thankful for that. But reading Isaiah 58, 7 makes me wonder, have I ever given up a day's food so that I could give that money to the Lord instead? That's what he's saying here. It could be a time to minister to others. Fasting can be a time to express grief. It would be a time to express grief when King Saul's reign of failure finally ended with his own death and the death of his sons in battle. Although he was a failed king, it was still a sad day that the king of Israel had fallen, that Israel was in such shame and degradation. And 1 Samuel 31.13 records the mighty men of Israel, the greatest valiant warriors, burying Saul and his sons and fasting seven days just to show their grief that the king of Israel had fallen. And fasting can be a time to seek wisdom. It can be a time to seek wisdom during the terrible time of civil war in Israel during the time of the judges. The army of Israel 
that had gone against the tribe of Benjamin, they took huge losses, 18,000 dead. And so Judges 20, 26, and 27 records that the whole army wept before the Lord. They were fasting and inquiring of God about what to do next in this tragic situation. So what can we say about fasting from the Bible? We can boil it down. Fasting for prideful purposes is pointless. And that will incur the discipline of the Lord. But fasting for humble purposes is a means to gain spiritual help. And it's all situational. Did you catch that? It's all based on various situations. Let me close our evening out with two easy observations from our time this evening. Two easy observations. First of all, you notice that Nehemiah was a man of prayer first and action second. He's a man of prayer first and action second. The first step in solving problems or walking through a problem with faithfulness is to pray. And second observation, the way to obtain something from God is not to try to convince him you deserve it, but rather to confess sin and humbly acknowledge your need as one speaking to the God, the great and the fearsome. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this word, which is so inspiring to us. This prayer of Nehemiah is like a, is like a, a warm campfire on a cool evening. It is like cool air when we're hot. It's refreshing. It's like a drink of water to a thirsty man or woman. Lord, I pray for all of us. There's not one of us, Lord, that has a prayer life that we ought to be truly satisfied with. And while we don't want to dwell on failure, we do want to strive, Lord, for spiritual wholesomeness. And this means striving in prayer. I'm, I'm just torn apart to see that Nehemiah would pray for day after day after day for three months, then making this bold request. Lord, may we be those sorts of prayer warriors. May, be, may we be those that would plan our prayers, that would be humble in prayer, that would confess specific sins in prayer. Lord, I, I pray that all of us would have the courage to open our Bibles and, and read and confess at the same time. I pray that in the record books of heaven, Grace Bible Church would be listed as a praying church. Whether it's together or in the private places of our own homes. Lord, I pray that we would take Nehemiah's example and we would go forth and even this night we would be men and women of prayer at just a slightly higher level so that you might be honored, so that you might be glorified because you are the God, the great, and the fearsome. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.